Hello, I'm uh, Dr. Eric Tangelos, and on behalf of uh, CME Outfitters, I'd like to welcome you to today's educational activity entitled Focusing on Brain Health, Managing Cognitive Impairment in Primary Care Settings. Uh, today's program is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. In support of improving patient care, CME Outfitters LLC is jointly accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, the Accreditation Council for Pharmacy Education, and the American Nurses Credentialing Center to provide continuing education for the healthcare team. And we hope all members of this particular team are accounted for today as we begin because that's how our faculty is put together. Uh, follow us on Twitter at CME Outfitters uh, for other upcoming events as well. So once again, I'm uh, Eric Tangelos, uh, Professor of Medicine, Division of Primary Care and Total Medicine, Geriatrics and Palliative Care at Mayo Clinic, and I've been in Rochester with Mayo since 1975. Our next speaker. Hello, everyone. I'm Sharon Cohen. I'm a behavioral neurologist, and I'm the Medical Director of Toronto Memory Program in Toronto, Canada. Hello, I'm Tatiana Sadak, a Jersey Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner and Associate uh, Dean um, and Associate Professor at the University of Washington School of Nursing. Our learning objectives today are to integrate the discussions of brain health and cognitive screenings into wellness visits with patients and caregivers, to employ appropriate follow-up assessments and referral for specialized diagnosis for patients with mild cognitive impairment, and to use a coordinated care approach with the treatment team for the ongoing management of patients with cognitive impairment. Our case today is Michael, a 70-year-old male who presents for a scheduled visit with his PCP accompanied by his daughter. The complaint is recent difficulties with memory and cognition. The present illness is that the patient reports, he reports that he's been struggling to follow conversations and got lost on a routine walk with his dog last week. A quote, I keep losing my train of thought mid-sentence. I'll be trying to think of a word, then the whole thought's just gone. And last week I was walking my dog on the same route I take every day, but for a minute there I didn't recognize anything. I figured it out eventually and was uh, very upsetted, upset by this. Now, the daughter reports noticing uh, concerning memory problems in her father lately. She's worried about Alzheimer's disease and asks about new therapies she's been reading about in her news feeds. So now we're going to uh, go through a brief overview of the trajectories and continuum of cognitive impairment before we focus on our case study. So there is a spectrum of memory and other cognitive changes that accompany aging. The same way our physical abilities change, memory, thinking also change as we are aging. Some typical normal age-related changes may include reduced ability to learn, to remember new materials, challenges while multitasking, mild difficulties in recalling people's names and places. And while these changes can sometimes be embarrassing, they're not considered to be pathological. On the other end, of the spectrum are much more significant, progressively worsening memory difficulties that are due to disease processes in the brain. 
These disease processes eventually lead to severe impairment in cognition and function and may be diagnosed as major neurocognitive disorder or dementia depicted here in red. About 75% of all diagnosed dementia in the elderly, age 65 and older, is due in whole or in part to Alzheimer's disease. Brain disease processes have different etiology, continuum, and trajectories. In many disease processes leading to dementia, there is a preclinical phase when pathological processes are just starting, but no changes are yet noticeable. There is a dementia phase when functional and cognitive impairment are prominent, and there is an in-between phase when mild cognitive changes are observed. This may manifest as subjective cognitive impairment, here depicted in blue, when the person is concerned about memory changes, but we don't yet see objective evidence of impairment in any of the cognitive domains. Or mild cognitive impairment, depicted here in purple. So to obtain diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, there has to be a presence of cognitive concern reflecting each change from baseline, reported by a patient, informant, or observed by a clinician. And there also has to be an objective evidence of mild impairment in at least one or more of the cognitive domains depicted here on the left of the slide. It is preferable that these changes are documented by standardized neuropsychological tests, but in the absence, another qualified clinical assessment is sufficient. Cognitive symptoms are not yet explained by delirium or another mental disorder, so there is no other diagnosis that can account for the symptoms. And independence and function um, and all the abilities are well preserved. So mild cognitive impairment does not always progress to dementia. The prevalence of conversion from mild cognitive impairment to dementia is about 10 to 15 percent. When conversion occurs, majority of cases are Alzheimer's disease. And lastly, cognitive impairment is not always due to dementia and is not always linear, progressive, or irreversible. Common potential reversible causes may include vitamin B deficiencies, thyroid disorders, Lyme disease, severe depression, medical problems, or other causes as um, delirium. Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, diseases for which age is a primary risk factor, are increasing in prevalence as the population of older adults is growing, depicted here on the right of the slide. For people over the age of 65, Alzheimer's disease is a fifth leading cause of death in the United States. Health system focus and infrastructure support for large-scale screening and early detection of cognitive impairment are essential for meeting the healthcare and social service needs associated with global rise in incidence of major neurocognitive disorders. Why is it important to detect cognitive impairment early? By detecting cognitive impairment early, people are given an opportunity to meaningfully engage in advanced care planning and legal planning and to inform their care in order to optimize their quality of life when they're no longer able to advocate and speak up for themselves. It also offers opportunities for early and assertive management of potentially modifiable risk factors and mitigation of future harms due to driving safety, getting lost, inability to work or manage finances, family and relationship conflict, and many others. It also allows a possibility for participation in clinical trials and future disease-modifying therapeutics. 
Cognitive screening is really ideally suited for primary care settings where patients usually already have an established long-term relationship with providers, other chronic conditions are managed, and continuity of care is offered. Medical wellness visit, a reimbursable comprehensive prevention-focused um, medical service, offers ideal opportunity for cognitive screens. However, the uptake for these visits is not yet universal, and we need to do better in incorporating this very important service that doesn't have any associated costs to the patient in all routine primary care practices. Also, medical wellness visit does not dictate how to conduct cognitive assessment and doesn't necessarily require the use of measures, which we highly recommend the use of the screen, especially for establishing a baseline and monitoring changes in cognition. So how do we detect cognitive impairment during routine primary care encounter? We'll listen and solicit reflections on subjective cognitive impairment. We consider information from patient and the informants. We monitor our clinical observations of patients' behavior presentation over time, and we use brief cognitive tools. When cognitive impairment is detected, Medicare covers a separate visit to more thoroughly assess cognitive function and develop a care plan. This Medicare billing code 99483 is a billing code that can be used about every 180 days and to dedicate about 50 minutes of face-to-face, in-person, or telehealth time to assessment and interview of patient and an informant. And it's reimbursed about $300, a little under. Uh, here we provide a link to the fact sheet that lists recommended measures, reporting requirements, and the slide is listing four elements. What is really important to remember is that the, all these core elements do not have to be collected during a single clinical encounter. Different evaluation components and data points can be collected asynchronously by different members of primary care team. For example, a caregiver interview, safety and social support evaluation can be conducted prior to the appointment. Now, all required data elements need to be collect, collated and documented when utilizing this billing code. And it's also important to remember that uh, in order to bill for this service, we must include an informant, an independent historial, historian, and we must produce a care plan. All right, so there are a variety of clinical tools for cognitive evaluation. And the first uh, caveat here is that there is a big difference between uh, screening and then uh, diagnosing the disease. And some of the questions already relate to how do you make a diagnosis? The more sophisticated the testing, the more likely you are to be able to say that the patient is deviated, has deviated from what their age and education norms are supposed to be. Also remember here that screening tests are meant for populations at risk. A true screening test has no particular value if it's used on a population that doesn't have risk for the disease. So you have to pick from the different clinical tools based on where your patients are in this continuum and how far you wanna pursue the diagnosis. So we've given plenty of different clinical tools here for you to use depending on where the patient is. Um, I will put out that the clinical assessment such as the MINICOG or the MOCA or the ADA are very important tests looking at cognitive domains. 
the minicog being much more simple than the MOCA, and the MOCA actually being able to distinguish at a bit higher level where this patient's function is, mostly based on the TRAILS test that's in there. Also for us geriatricians, when we're looking at dementia staging, the FAST and the CDR and the DSR and the GDS are important tests. And if there's psychiatrists in the audience, the NPIQ and the BEHAVE-AD and the PHQ-2 or the PHQ-9 are important as well. The last caveat I want to mention here is that some of you are still in the habit of doing your own testing. You know what? It's really not good enough. That's an N of one just with you. All of these tests that are shown here are validated tests. There are certain ways to do the MOCA. There are certain ways to score a clock draw. And there are specific answers that go with the PHQ-2, the PHQ-9, and in the FAST rating scale, as a matter of fact. So all of these tools are very useful, but they all have to be put into the perspective of where does this patient stand? As we pursue this particular case, it's also important to recognize that the patient has a complaint. Not only he has a complaint, his, his daughter has a complaint. And irrespective of how he might score on a very brief little test, it really doesn't matter. It's concomitant to us to pursue this patient because of a complaint. He is no longer in a population at risk. He is making a statement that he might be at risk. So let's open it up for some discussion right now. I want to talk a bit about the coding that's available. And let's see if uh, Tatani and Sharon have something more to, to add here. Well, one of our discussion prompts was how do we see the addition of the billing codes and reimbursable um, services influence the quality of uh, diagnosis and um, detection of cognitive impairment in primary care. And um, this billing code that you know I briefly outlined really allows for systematic collection of data that is important for interpreting and placing where the person is in this continuum of cognitive impairment and establishing very important baseline against which we're going to be monitoring patients' progress. So we've been doing these discussions uh, and talking about this code in, in other sessions that, that I've had. And with each year that passes, more and more of the uh, providers are using this particular code. It was put in place by the Alzheimer's Association. and um, American Geriatric Society, when they advocated to CMS that physicians and practitioners are spending way more time with these patients and should be reimbursed for those activities. And what's really also nice about this code is it almost demands uh, multiple team members to help out and get the information that's necessary. Sharon? Yes, so I practice in Canada, but we also have a neurocognitive assessment billing code. And I think exactly as Tatiana and Eric are saying, bringing attention to the fact that this is not just a routine visit. It's not a five-minute chit-chat. This is a focused assessment, and it takes some time. You can't just, you know, sum up, this, you know, the complexity of someone's cognition and cognitive complaint and cognitive function by looking at them, you really actually have to do some testing. Doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, hours of neuropsychological testing, but you need to do at least a brief screening test. So being compensated for the time spent is is very important, I think, to to bring uh, physicians and primary care online uh, as to doing these things. So 
all of those items that we've listed are easy to find with a Google search, and a lot of them are available within your healthcare system. Uh, Epic has many of those tools built in as well. And we're not going to be able to get to all of the questions, that's for sure. There's a number of them that have already come in. But a trails test, one person asked, is is when you either time or don't time a, a test that takes you from 1 to A to 2 to B to 3 to C, and you have to draw it. And that encompasses an awful lot of cognitive capability to get that kind of test done. So if you look at the MOCA completely, it's got way more items than the two items that you have on a little bitty simple test. And again, if you're already thinking about a test, then we've actually accomplished quite a bit for, of what we want to do. We want you to use validated tests, reproducible tests, and CMS is also asking you to use validated reproducible tests because they won't reimburse at this much higher level unless there's the evidence that you've done the right thing. And right. maybe Eric, I could add with our focus on mild cognitive impairment, the MMSE and the MOCA take about the same amount of time to do. They're both brief screening tests scored out of 30. However, the sensitivity of the MMSE for mild cognitive impairment is about 17%. It cannot distinguish normal from mild cognitive impairment from mild dementia. And the, the MOCA, you know, in contrast, is about 90% for picking up mild cognitive impairment. So again, you, you need to pick the tool that matches your impression of where that patient is in the continuum of uh, cognitive complaints. Very Sharon, good. can you comment about the slum? There is a question. Um, came from the audience. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm aware of the St. Louis test, and I'm aware that it's very um, um, much appreciated, and it's a quick test. I personally don't use it, but that's not because of any any negativity towards it, um, but uh, similar to the MOCA and a rapid screening test that has good validity. So that would be, I'm sure, acceptable with the, the fee codes that you're talking about. Yeah, and some of these tests, um, uh, it can be done not by the patient. They can be done by the reporter, the observer. So the AD8 is one of those tests that can be observer presented, uh, uh, done. And then, of course, the FAST scale is a, a big scale that's observer done as well. So, again, pick your poison, but uh, do pick one or more that actually are validated. And the list of tools that we are mentioning is uh, can be found by clicking on the link under the cognitive assessment and care planning codes. Most of these tools uh, and the links to how to interpret and administer them are listed there. All right, let's move on with our, our patient. And, and he had a fairly extensive evaluation. Here's the mini cog, the clock draw. He did fine. His ADL score was a high function. His IADL scores. We're not bad as, as well. No symptoms. Fast only stage two. Only a couple medications. Physical, neuro exam, and routine labs were all okay. Uh, his lifestyle, he retired. He lives alone. His daughter lives close by. There's minimal daily social interaction. Rarely has alcohol. Diets high in processed food. Minimal exercise. He walks his dog less than one mile a day, but at least he walks his dog. And so, you know, uh, the assessment results, a lot of it has to do with how he complained and what he complained about, okay? Each of the following is not an advantage uh, to help us with an early MCI diagnosis. 
you've got a choice of proactive intervention, legal planning, prevention of future harms, and access to Alzheimer's disease cures. All right, so um, the right answer is uh, answered correctly 63% of the time. There are no cures for Alzheimer's disease at the present time. Even the buzz that the daughter's been listening about never touted itself as a cure for the disease, but we are probably all faced with uh, patients and families looking for cures. So many other diseases have cures. Among all of the other answers, any one of them or all of them are actually correct and hopefully will convince you that uh, running toward the diagnosis rather than away from it makes sense and is helpful, that it allows for legal planning, and um, there is an opportunity for the prevention of harms as we go on as well. It's important to understand that the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment is the diagnosis of a syndrome. There's a cognitive complaint. There is objective evidence of cognitive impairment in one or more domains on testing, but the individual is still independent in their day-to-day -day activities. Banking, shopping, they may be working, driving. That's not to say that they are not concerned, that they don't have more frustration or require more compensatory strategies or self-cueing, but they're still independent. And with this syndrome, the next step, rather than be satisfied that we've made a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, is to ask why, what's causing this? There is some underpinning here. And we divide the possible causes into neurodegenerative diseases causing mild cognitive impairment and non-neurodegenerative diseases. So the commonest neurodegenerative disease and the commonest cause overall of mild cognitive impairment, particularly in seniors, is Alzheimer's disease, and this disease accounts for 60 to 80 percent of all cases of dementia. But it is not the only cause, and I will mention other ones, but nonetheless, it's an important one, and sometimes Alzheimer's and dementia are conflated, or MCI and Alzheimer's disease, because of the, the common relationship. So with Alzheimer's disease, we have a rising prevalence. The prevalence doubles every uh, five years after the age of 65. More women than men insidious onset, gradual progression and worsening of the disease, with the earliest symptom generally, not always, but generally being forgetfulness, memory, memory, memory. Can't remember what I did yesterday. Can't remember if I spoke to my daughter or what that conversation was about. Other cognitive domains are certainly involved increasingly as the disease progresses, and in some cases, they may be the early symptoms. Um, neuropsychiatric symptoms are common both early and throughout the disease, they wax and wane. Early in disease, frustration, irritability, apathy are common. Later in the disease, we have uh, uh, more challenging behaviors, not to minimize the early behaviors, but the challenging ones of wandering, sleep-wake, cycle disturbance, agitation, delusions. Um, and um, so this is sort of a snapshot of this disease that runs its course from the mild cognitive impairment stage, which lasts on average five years, to a dementia stage, which lasts on average 10 years. If we look at a much rarer neurodegenerative disease, frontotemporal dementia, or the frontotemporal dementias, here we're talking about a group of diseases more common in midlife, typically diagnosed in the 40s or 50s, um, and men more than women, Insidious onset, gradual progression, but more rapidly progressive generally than Alzheimer's disease. 
and two main clinical syndromes, a language dominant one, usually semantic dementia, not just word finding, but losing the meaning of words like cup, cup, what, what's a cup? Um, and the behavioral variant, which is the one that people think of most, where there's a loss of social conduct, where people kind of lose the boundaries of what, what is polite or rude, and, you know, an upright citizen is now stealing things, and, you know, very striking personality change for that individual. Memory can be variable in the FTDs, and the FTDs are an umbrella of diseases, so there can be additional neurologic and other findings depending on the specific disease. So you may, some of you may have heard of um, cortical basal syndrome, progressive supranuclear palsy, motor neuron disease associated with FTD. So these are a few of the diseases that have other accompanying either gaze palsies, rigidity, uh, progressive weakness, muscle weakness, depending on which variety. Lewy body disease, here we've got uh, alpha-synuclein as the uh, toxic protein that occurs in Parkinson's disease, dementia, and also in cortical Lewy body disease. Uh, it's, it's generally a neurodegenerative disease of seniors, males equal to female, uh, insidious onset, gradual progression, but more at the rate of the FTDs, not quite as slow and insidious as Alzheimer's disease. And here from the cognitive profile, visual, spatial, and executive function are prominently impaired. Memory, again, is variable, unlike Alzheimer's disease, where memory is the most common. And typically, to make a diagnosis of Lewy body disease, you need some of the common associated features. Dramatic fluctuations, not just a little bit of day-to-day -day fluctuation, but dramatic fluctuations, visual hallucinations, dream enactment, that's what we mean by REM behavior disorder, acting out one's dreams, spontaneous features of Parkinsonism, motor features without being on uh, drugs that elicit that, and striking sensitivity to side effects of neuroleptics. And then a very rare disease, Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease. This is a prion disease. A wide range of ages can be affected. It's generally subacute, and it's in the differential for rapidly progressive dementias and often is accompanied by uh, seizures and uh, a prominent aphasia and Parkinsonism, myoclonus. Now, vascular dementia, the last one on this table, is of particular interest because why is this a neurodegenerative? disease that can cause mild cognitive impairment or dementia. Well, the second bullet here, you see insidious onset stepwise, sorry, insidious onset and slow progression. That is one of the options, especially when you have white matter ischemia, uh, what some people refer to as Binswanger's disease, rather than a sudden stroke onset or several strokes where you get the stepwise progression. So with vascular dementia, it certainly can have the appearance of an insidious and slowly progressive dementia, but there may be focal findings, uh, both motor or sensory cerebellar, there may be gait disturbance. Now, if we turn to the other half of the differential diagnosis, you've got someone with MCI or maybe with mild dementia, what are some of the non-neurodegenerative causes? And Tatiana mentioned some of these. It's certainly not all neurodegenerative disease. It could be uh, depression or anxiety giving the so-called pseudo-dementia, not to say that you can't have depression and anxiety part and parcel of a neurodegenerative dementia, but psychiatric disorders themselves can cause their own cognitive impairment. Side effects of medication, we see this commonly with anticholinergic drugs that are used to treat uh, uh, benign prostatic hypertrophy or for other reasons. 
uh, thyroid disease, renal or liver dysfunction, if it's uh, unchecked, can cause cognitive impairment. And sleep disorders here, quality and quantity of sleep, if, if, it's, if it's not optimal, can affect cognition and probably sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea is the most well-known in terms of its impact on uh, the brain with repeated episodes of hypoxia uh, and, uh, and damage to the medial temporal lobes and the, the memory uh, structures. Uh, CNS infections used to be neurosyphilis as, as a big one. These days, COVID probably affecting the CNS, and especially with long COVID, people feel in a fog some of the time. And of course, there are other infections of the central nervous system B12 deficiency, um, primary or secondary uh, brain tumors, alcohol and other substance uh, abuse. These can also cause dementia or MCI. And of course, vision and hearing impairment are not really a cause of MCI, but may contribute substantially to one's ability to, uh, to take in information, to encode, to see or hear and be part of the conversation and therefore to remember things. So uh, one has to be careful about not mistaking cognitive impairment for visual or hearing deficit. So what we've learned over time is that for Alzheimer's disease, this is a very long disease. It's at least 20 years. Most of us would say it's about 30 years from the pre-symptomatic stage where there is accumulation of toxic proteins in the brain to the dementia stage. And in between, you see early MCI, late MCI as that intermediate stage. And we can characterize the disease biologically, not just by clinical signs and symptoms and cognitive testing and history, but actually through biomarkers. And the ATN framework refers to a, a very important movement in neurology now describing amyloid, phosphorylated tau, and neurodegeneration as the biologic underpinning of Alzheimer's disease. And what you see on the graph with these different colors are the timing, the temporal course of these different biomarkers with the first two uh, rapidly rising and abnormal curves representing amyloid either measured in the spinal fluid or by PET amyloid imaging. And later on, you see the shrinkage of the hippocampus, you see cognitive uh, decline, you see functional decline, and uh, hyperphosphorylated tau, which can be seen on a PET tau image or measured in the CSF, becomes abnormal closer to uh, the onset of symptoms and progresses throughout the disease. And here, finally, what I want to show you is that if one was suspecting that Alzheimer's disease was the cause of an individual's mild cognitive impairment, a PET scan, a glucose PET, FDG PET, would show a characteristic pattern. It wouldn't be absolutely diagnostic, but it would be highly suggestive. And what you see with the FDG PET is on your right, the uh, normal glucose uptake in the brain. And on the left, someone with mild cognitive impairment, where you have much less uh, glucose metabolism in the posterior temporal and parietal lobes. If you look at the MRI, again, it can be very suggestive of Alzheimer's disease as the underlying pathology. And what you see here, so the MRI is not just to rule out strokes and tumors and other structural abnormalities, it's also to help rule in Alzheimer's disease. And if you get one of these uh, slices here, you see the temporal lobes and you see the hippocampi. And in the normal brain, you have diffuse atrophy, that's uh, section D, but in uh, image C, you see very marked hippocampal atrophy. The hippocampi are really shrunken down disproportionately. 
And finally, with a PET amyloid image, here we're directly imaging amyloid. And amyloid is uh, on a PET scan, um, uh, shown in, in red primarily and a little bit in yellow, and you see normal in image F, no amyloid uptake. And in E, in someone, even at the MCI stage, this mild cognitive impairment stage, they have a head full of amyloid distributed throughout the cerebral cortex. All right. Um, we're going to spend some time on these answers, but uh, which of the following tools are helpful in determining the underlying cause of MCI? All right, that's it. It's all of the above. Uh, all of these tests in various situations can make a big difference in how we look at patients. There were a number of uh, questions that came in asking about progression of disease. How do you know? Um, are there normative studies um, over age 75? And there are. And, and in fact, the principal diagnosis here is made because the patient has that memory complaint and then puts together a very good story of having trouble with not only memory, but having some problems with problem solving that he's able to resolve on his own. So neuropsychological tests are very helpful to set the stage, say where that patient is, and give us a good idea of what they can still do and what they might not be able to do. As we uh, pursue a better understanding of biomarkers, our CSF and PET helps. And structural brain imaging also helps us determine where that patient is, as was pointed out in, in Sharon's um, slide. So all of these um, are opportunities for us to move forward. There were a lot of questions that have come in about the differentials of other types of MCI, and that's really beyond the scope of today's discussion. We're talking for the most part about the MCI of Alzheimer's disease, and we're talking about the therapies of MCI for Alzheimer's disease as well. So that's where we are. It, it comes up all the time. Where does MCI end and dementia begin? That gets also at many of the questions that have have come before me as moderator. You want to try to pick that one up? Sure, I'm I'm happy to to pick that one up. That's uh, something we deal with all the time here. So you have to really think about the syndrome definition. There's a cognitive complaint if the patient's not insightful, and the family or the employer have the complaint. That's legitimate. There's objective evidence of cognitive impairment on whatever test you choose to use, but the individual is still independent in their usual activities. So if their usual activity is, you know, traveling to Florida or driving to the gas station or doing their own banking, whatever it is, hosting parties, they are still able to do that. That doesn't mean they're not having some struggle, some anxiety feeling less able, they're still independent as soon as they can no longer do something independently. So daughter has to take over helping with the finances, or I've given up driving, or I've decided to retire because work's too challenging. Then we have moved into the dementia phase. So it is a bit of a wavy line because we know that depending on one's lifestyle, you know, I, 
if if you're a senior and you have a fairly sedentary lifestyle versus a senior who's still working, you're not you're not challenging yourself in quite the same way and may not realize when things are changing to the point where you have to give something up. Be that what it may, the definition is if you are no longer able to do something independently, you are in the dementia stage, as long as the reason for that is uh, cognitive decline as opposed to vision loss or a physical ailment. Sure. And one of these, again, a bunch of these questions talk about what's normal, what's normal, what's normative. And you you have to compare yourself to someone that's your age with your education, because we do know that the scores fall off as we get older. The the verbal tests that we do, the things that you and I rehearse every day, you're, you're practicing your verbal skills right now drop off less significantly than the procedural stuff, the problem-solving stuff. So I like to say if you're struggling in the parking lot finding your car, look around for somebody that's your age. Are they suffering from the same difficulties, not someone's at 30 years younger? And in addition, nowadays with cars as the example, the problem solving occurs on your key fob. You just call your car by pressing the emergency button. So um, technology actually can help us uh, and help our patients as well as they uh, work through their difficulties. Tatiana, anything to add before we move on? Yeah, that's a beautiful example Eric you just provided for kind of how one, one of the di differentiating features between MCI and dementia, you can be forgetful, you can experience some deficits, but if you're able to overcome them, for example, using technology, using reminders, using notes, and your daily function is not affected, then you are likely still in this MCI stage. Some very important multiple questions came in uh, from our audience saying, so when you identify potentially reversible risk factor, what do you do? Do you continue with the diagnosis? Do you continue formulating that person has MCI or dementia? And um, the, the answer would be anytime you identify any risk factor or cause that's modifiable, it is our duty to address it, right, and to try to treat it to the best of our ability. It doesn't necessarily, uh, it, it may not change your diagnosis, and your diagnosis is a really fluid concept. You know, you're going to be seeing person over time, you're going to be trying different interventions, and you're going to be monitoring. And this is why the use of simple measures is so important, because sometimes the changes may not be perceptible between visits when you see somebody for just, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, you know, every few months. But your simple screen can give you an indication of how the person might be doing, especially if you identified, for example, major depression and you referred or you started treatment that, you know, you expect them to have significant change in several months. Let's look at our case some more and try to answer a few more uh, issues here. So we think that Michael's got uh, MCI due to AD based on the clinical presentation more than anything else that we've given you. He did have cognitive assessment. He did have neuropsychological evaluation. And he has had some underlying um, uh, biomarker imaging as well that's gone on. So we've already talked about some of the education that we can provide to Michael and his daughter regarding prognosis. We're going to talk about that right now as well. And we're going to talk about the interventions that might be available to prevent or delay progression as well. So th those slides will, will come into play in just a second. Uh, I'm, I'm going to make another comment about this, this, this fellow. Um, on much more than one occasion, I have written a prescription for a new dog 
this man's walking a dog, and I've seen many mm, frail elderly drop off the face uh, of uh, ambulation when they've lost their pet and they've given up an activity. So these activities are to be preserved, and we like people to stay as independent, doing as much as possible without frustration, or as long as possible as well. So again, there are modifiable dementia, modifiable dementia risk factors. Uh, early life, the genetics and less education play a role here. In midlife, we're talking about hearing loss, and there were a number of recent articles just published this past couple of weeks about hearing loss and the dementia risk. Traumatic brain injury, one question talked about getting your bell rung, and indeed, Mm, traumatic brain injury uh, and and concussions earlier in life may indeed play a role. And that's not to be confused with dementia pugilistica. We're just talking about somebody that's gotten knocked out once or twice. Hypertension, excessive alcohol, obesity, and then late in life, smoking, depression, social isolation. The, the, the inability to interact is huge. Physical inactivity, that walking of the dog, and then other medical conditions that we can control like diabetes and that we can't control like air pollution also play a role. And then probably the unclear risk is the biggest one yet. Lots of work going on with sleep dysfunction and dietary patterns, types of diets, and uh, presumptively cognitive inability as well. Although there's not much to uh, commend uh, the New York Times crossword puzzle as a safety valve to prevent uh, Alzheimer's disease. The management, uh, our goals in the non-pharmacologic framework are to prevent delay as much as possible, and that really is managing their other medical conditions, limiting their opportunities to fall, uh, and hip fractures are a classic example of, an, of unmasking an underlying problem. And then the mantra of the Alzheimer's Association for the last, I'd say, 40 years now is to have the person maintain function with minimal failure and maximal use of retained abilities. And Sharon's talked about when you go from MCI to Alzheimer's disease, it usually involves a functional component. So our goals are to keep people functioning and to be able to refresh the environment they're in and to relearn from their environment day in and day out. So we optimize vascular health. We rectify hearing and vision problems. We go for frequent social interactions consistent with what the patient wants to do, and we listen to their voice. We like intellectual activities, and there is probably a role for cognitive training. Now, way over on the right side of the slide is the psychological well-being and the social determinants of health, and we would be ill-advised not to recommend that we all do a better job understanding the social determinants of health. So that's a big deal. Economic stability, education access and quality, healthcare access and, and quality, neighborhoods and the built environment and social and community context. And beyond the scope of today's discussion are the, um, the blue zones where people live healthy, interact all the time, eat good diets, don't particularly get sick. And it has a lot to do with the social structure 
and the economic stability of those particular environments. Thank you, Eric. So you've you've covered a, a broad swath of non-pharmacologic interventions that are so important if we think someone has MCI of whatever cause, but MCI due to Alzheimer's disease because this is going to progress over time to the dementia phase and we want to keep people functioning as well as possible. When we talk about pharmacologic interventions, sadly, the most um, uh, widely available treatments are symptomatic treatments. And the reason I say sadly is these approved treatments are only modestly helpful. We've had them for 20 years. A little bit of benefit in a bad disease is still good, but they are indicated formally for the dementia phase of Alzheimer's disease. In the case of dinepazole from mild to severe, in the case of galantamine, mild moderate stage of Alzheimer's disease dementia, we have we have two classes of drugs, the cholinesterase inhibitors, that's the dinepazole, rivastigmine, galantamine bunch, and then we have one glutamate modulator, which targets a different uh, uh, neurotransmitter, glutamate, um, indicated for the moderate to severe stage of Alzheimer's disease dementia. These are either oral medications or in the case of, uh, of um, rivastigmine, there's a transdermal patch uh, applied daily, uh, and there's a titration schedule. However, very, very, very importantly, none of these are approved for the MCI stage of Alzheimer's disease. So people actually have to get worse before they meet the formal indication for these drugs if they have underlying Alzheimer's disease. Fortunately, the drug development pipeline is quite robust, and there are over, you know, about 100 drugs, let's say, that are under development that would apply to the early stages of Alzheimer's, including the MCI stage, and that are designed to demonstrate disease slowing, not simply symptom improvement, which is often only transient if you don't get at the underlying pathology early in the disease. Over a year ago, aducanumab received accelerated approval uh, by the FDA based on its ability to lower amyloid, this early pathologic marker of the disease, uh, because it was felt reasonably likely that clearance of amyloid early would lead to clinical benefit. There was some controversy. I won't get into that because it's complicated, but willing to answer any questions you might have. But suffice it to say at the moment, there is a confirmatory trial which was mandated by the FDA. It is ongoing. It is active right now. It's a phase three, four confirmatory study to demonstrate the clinical efficacy of aducanumab to slow disease in early stage disease, including MCI. Um, unfortunately, CMS has restricted the coverage of anti-amyloid antibodies when they are approved via the accelerated pathway. So this has been a barrier, even though aducanumab is approved, it, uh, it does not have cost coverage, and hopefully in the future that will change. Lacanumab is receiving a lot of buzz. Some of you may have heard the press release at the end of September or followed the, uh, uh, the recent conference uh, CTAD in San Francisco showing that lacanumab in phase three in early Alzheimer's disease, that's MCI and mild AD dementia, was able to slow progression of disease by 27% on its primary outcome measure and up to 37% disease slowing on its functional outcome, IADL scale, uh, and substantially reduce amyloid with a very reasonable side effect profile. A similar but not identical monoclonal antibody targeting amyloid 
Denanumab will read out in uh, uh, mid next year as far as its efficacy results. But there was a recent readout for six months results of a head-to-head -head trial of denanumab versus aducanumab, strictly in terms of speed of amyloid lowering. And denanumab over a six-month period was dramatically able to lower amyloid, whereas aducanumab, which requires a six-month titration, so it's sort of not a surprise that the amount of amyloid lowering one would get at six months would not meet that of denanumab, which is better, too soon to say. Uh, and gantanerumab, very sadly, did not meet its uh, primary outcome measure. It will be discontinued now. It's no longer under development for Alzheimer's disease, despite being a monoclonal antibody with previous evidence that it lowers amyloid. It didn't show very much amyloid lowering in this phase three uh, pivotal trial. And it is felt that the clinical results were poor because not enough amyloid was cleared from the brain. So I think that we will have better and better therapies. These are just the ones that are of high attention now, but small molecules that will not require infusion or injection are also in the drug development pipeline. So the management uh, and the serial monitoring, um, the caveat here is that patients with MCI receive less uh, directed care, no matter how you look at it. And um, the, the whole purpose here is to be patient-centered and to listen to the patient in their voice. They still have significant capacity and ability to get by. And again, one of the advantages of uh, neuropsychological testing is not to see how much a person has lost, but to assess how much a person has retained and so that their capacities can be maximized and the decisions that they can make should be made and should be listened to. And I think our worry, even with this case, is to account to the patient more than we do to the daughter. So that's the, the headline for how we manage and how we look at the patient going forward, think about what they can still do and how we need to address their particular needs. I will just briefly summarize for us. So our take home message is, it's really important to engage in partnership and joint decision-making with your patients and their family members to help align goals of care with goals of life, as Eric, you know, just told us about, and really to uh, engage in um, population-based approaches and early screening and detection of cognitive impairment uh, so that we can offer our patients opportunities to engage in early advanced care planning, uh, kind of make plans uh, on how they want to be cared for even when the disease progresses and they're not able to engage uh, in care planning and decision-making. It may be important to refer patients who have unclear MCI and cognitive impairment etiology for specialized assessment testing and evaluation. And there's a question in the chat on when do you refer for neurocognitive testing? I want to pose this question to Eric and Sharon. So it would be terrific if someone in primary care had the, the time and skill set to do some screening testing. And uh, taking a focused uh, MCR dementia history and you know doing a physical exam, ruling out the things that one can rule out through routine blood work and a structural brain scan. However, we know that even in expert hands, that is not always going to lead to a clear diagnosis. So 
you know, as Eric's been pointing out so cogently, people are in front of us saying, what's wrong with me, doc? There's something that's not right. And it behooves us to take this to the next step. So anybody who feels more testing should be done for their patient or the patient's asking for further confirmation uh, with a biological marker, that might be then the trigger to refer to a specialist where we certainly could uh, obtain uh, either spinal fluid or other markers to be more clear about the underlying diagnosis. In primary care, if one suspected Alzheimer's disease and if this was at the dementia stage, certainly prescribing a cholinesterase inhibitor makes a lot of sense. But if we're talking about biologics to come, here we're going to need underlying biomarker confirmation that we actually have amyloid in the brain, and that would be a trigger to refer someone for a more in-depth workup so that they could access um, uh, what we expect will be newly approved therapeutics in the near future. All right. We've been answering your questions all along. Those of you um, who realize that, um, I'm, I'm happy for you. Um, there are questions about what books to get, how to go about understanding this better. We've got resources in the presentation outline, especially from the Alzheimer's Association, to help get you the additional information that you need um, with regards to the biomarkers. Um, they're, they're more often in the hands, especially the, the CSF biomarkers. I leave that to the neurologist. I, I'm not at that point yet. And with regard to blood-based biomarkers, yes, you can get them, but they're not approved uh, yet uh, for reimbursement. And so the ones that are out there are, are still um, not investigational. They're used by all of the drug uh, studies, but you can't get to them um, in, in terms of uh, part of your clinical package right now. Um, the amyloid scans, uh, for the most part, difficult to uh, get to. Uh, unless you're in a study protocol. Um, Titania, any one of these that you want to pick up and answer while we got a few minutes left? I think I just want to emphasize that we need to exercise this whole person approach and that primary care is really well positioned to detect and to manage uh, straightforward cases of malcognitive impairment and dementia. So I just want to encourage our audience not to shy away from making the diagnosis and care plans and take uh, best advantage of reimbursable codes that are available right now from Medicare. Sharon, last word. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's been a pleasure to have this discussion. I think we're all aligned that the patient voice has to be heard and people are asking for your honest opinion, doctor, what's wrong with me? And so we don't want to say, oh, don't worry. You know, what do you expect for being 70 or 75? We want to say, let's have a look. Let's take this to the next step. And if I can't figure it out to your satisfaction, then I'll refer you on. But let's go one step at a time. Oh, one, hey, let's try this one. Once you get a dementia stage, how do you weigh the side effects versus benefits? And I guess that addresses the cholinesterase inhibitors more than anything else. These drugs are best early in the course of the disease, running toward the diagnosis rather than away from it. They've got their best efficacy, even though it's limited with, cogn with the cognitive domains, much less so with the functional domains and almost non-existent uh, in the behavioral categories. So early and at high dose. 
And Vivica provider absolutely should be starting medications for dementia. It is fully within the scope of practice, as well as man managing other, you know, comorbid chronic conditions. So please don't shy away as a primary care clinician from treating dementia by using evidence-based practices. Right. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll just take the just curious one about amyloid in the brain. Is this something that exists in normal brain, but in smaller amounts? So... You know, it used to be touted that about 30% of seniors had amyloid in the brain as just part of normal aging. We don't think this anymore. Amyloid accumulation is an abnormal state. And if you have amyloid, you have a pathological marker of Alzheimer's disease. It's a matter of time, and it can be a long time before you develop cognitive symptoms, uh, MCI and dementia due to Alzheimer's, but it is no longer thought to be normal. Uh, the small amounts of amyloid that are produced in the brain are generally cleared from the brain by natural mechanisms that the brain has to deal with toxic proteins. So to get an accumulated level that causes a PET scan to read as positive is no longer considered normal. I hope that helps. If I could comment on the last question, what are what assessments are best to use for low, low literacy or English second language patients? So the simple as a tool is the better. So the more complicated tools that require very complex verbal, you know, propping and setup would be more challenging for people with uh, low literacy. So again, very simplified tools would be most effective with this population. All right. I want to thank the presenters. I want to thank CME Outfitters. And I want to thank all of you for being part of this program. We'll have you visit the Neuropsychiatric Hub. And then we're going to ask you to receive credit as well. You've got to complete the evaluations in order to get the credit. That's all.